This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI, 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Welfare was one of the most hotly contested issues in post-war America. Bolstered by the accomplishments of the Civil Rights Movement, the National Welfare Rights Organization, the largest membership organization of low-income people in U.S. history, succeeded in focusing national attention on the needs of welfare recipients. In her new book, The Battle for Welfare Rights, Policies, Politics and Poverty in Modern America, our guest today, Felicia Cornblue, chronicles an American war on poverty fought first and foremost by poor people themselves. Cornblue teaches history at Duke University. She has written for The Nation, Los Angeles Times, Women's Review of Books, and In These Times. Felicia Cornblue, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thanks. Glad to be here. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. What's it like in North Carolina? Are things uh, sunny or raining? Um, North Carolina is pretty much always hot and humid in the summer, so it's a little less hot and a little less humid today. Oh, well, I guess that's a good thing then, huh? Uh, yes, it's a bit of a relief. And I actually, I just got back from Berlin, where I was oh, really? at a at a legal studies conference. So, were you doing uh, anything in relation to the to the book there in Berlin? Yeah, well, I was talking um, there. I was talking to people about the issue of rights, uh-huh. um, and it's interesting because a lot of scholars and a lot of activists too have been very critical of uh, of rights and said that you know just asserting our rights doesn't get us very far. So they're really interested when I talk about welfare rights, because that's a very powerful kind of uh, an argument that people made, a powerful claim that people made for um, for welfare rights, which really were economic rights and social mm-hmm. rights. You think you changed any minds there or opened any <laughs> eyes? I think maybe I complicated their understanding. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what we can do as scholars. Maybe, <laughs> maybe I'll change their minds at some later point. Yeah. Well, what, what's the crux of the of the disagreement over an assertion of rights? How, what is, how does that play out? Well, I think what happened was that after um, after the heyday of the civil rights movement, and especially recently because of um, you know all the disappointments that that people have, people who care about these issues have faced, even up to the recent Supreme Court case, you know, against basically against integration on the basis of race in public schools, like a lot of people have said that you know we suffered all these defeats. That must be because people in the 1960s did something wrong, mm-hmm. right? And and so people now go back sort of like Monday morning quarterbacking and say, oh, you know, well, that movement must have had the wrong rhetoric. It must have had the wrong strategies, you know. And I, so, I mean, I respect that that view, especially for people who, you know, who fought really hard in the 60s and who now are very disappointed. Um, but I come at it from a different from a different view, which is, um, as a historian, I say, look, they did, they did things that were, it was perfectly reasonable for them to do. They had really innovative, creative strategies. They tried really hard. And they got beaten by forces that were stronger than them. Well, tell us so, about the beginnings of the movement then. Uh, what, what came into play then? What, where were they standing as far as welfare rights go? Well, one of the things that I found in the process of working on the book, which actually was kind of inspiring to me and did give me some hope, was that the civil rights movement in the U.S., um, and some scholars call it, you know, call it more broadly the freedom movement, um, so that it doesn't seem like it was about something narrow, something, you know, narrow civil rights, that that movement was really national in scope. It wasn't just in the South. And it really was very ambitious. And so by the, by the early 1960s, 
that freedom movement or that civil rights movement was was operating in cities like New York and L.A. and Chicago, as well as in the Deep South, and and especially outside the South, it became a movement for economic justice and a movement for economic rights, not just a movement for you know formal legal equality for African Americans, and that was an was an incredibly challenging even revolutionary thing. Um, and it, it wound up, you know, it pushed the federal government very, very far toward creating a war on poverty and toward expanding um, our social provisions in a whole variety of ways. You know, they created the Medicare program in the mid-60s and the Medicaid program for poor people um, and, uh, and also expanded the availability of um, cash welfare benefits. So I see all that stuff growing out of the civil rights movement or the freedom movement. And then by about 1963, as kind of one tail of that movement, people started organizing explicitly around um, issues of public assistance or public aid, mostly African-American, but also Puerto Rican, Mexican-American, poor and poor white folks um, started saying, you know, look, we also have specific claims um, specific demands that have to do with the fact that we receive these public benefits and that we're treated very badly as recipients of these programs. And uh, so they started locally in the in around 1963, um, and then by 1966 they were ready to coordinate a national movement and do national level demonstrations calling for what they called welfare rights. And it was an astounding thing. Mm-hmm. Now, in 1964, was uh, was it that uh, President Johnson uh, signed in the uh, the war on poverty instigated it. Was that right? Am I correct in yeah, the date there yeah, in '64? No, so, I know so you what said I in, that the civil rights movement kind of pushed that. Yeah, created the opportunity for that to happen. But but in your book you write that uh, it inspired optimism and dis- disappointment in equal measure. What what do you mean by that? What is the disappointment? Well, what happened was that um, there were all these activists on the ground who were doing civil rights work or economic justice work. And and then the war on poverty was created, and initially um, it was a huge shot in the arm for people. It really it made it possible for people who had been, you know, kind of struggling and organizing on a shoestring, it made it possible for them to do things they'd never been able to do before. Suddenly they had lawyers who would help them. Suddenly they had, you know, white middle-class kids who were um, affiliated with the VISTA program, which is a, part of the federal war on poverty, who were there who could work with their movements and help them out, staff their offices, um, and help them help people build infrastructure. So initially, it was um, it was an incredibly great thing. But then the federal government, um, in many many places, got skittish and mm-hmm. afraid, be- just precisely because of that. Because the movements expanded so much um, with that assistance, and local politicians started to complain to Washington, um, to their Congress people, or to the White House. And so a lot of those programs were defunded, they were shut down, they were kind of blacklisted. Um, and so people, I think a lot of people who had, been, who had been inspired and who had thought, look, you know, we did all this work and so now the mainstream political system is really responding to us, I think they got very disaffected and a lot of people became more militant. You know, and some people went off in a black nationalist kind of direction and some people went into the movement that I was describing, the welfare rights movement, which was in some ways a very militant movement. And you've uh, written, too, and I didn't know this, that uh, there was support by both uh, Richard Nixon and by Milton Friedman of, of a lot of these welfare programs. Am, am I correct in saying that? Yes, I was absolutely. I was astonished when I saw that. Could you talk a little bit about that? Um, it is astonishing. It's, uh, it's good, because as a historian, sometimes people don't believe that 
that you know such a recent period really is history. But if you think about that, if you think about this, that the fact that um, Republicans were calling for um, something that we could identify as welfare rights, then it really does seem like history, right? This really was a different moment in time. Um, and I think the way it happened was, in part, you know, somebody like Milton Friedman in some ways is just intellectually consistent, and he was saying, well, what we need is a program that's efficient. Mm-hmm. And the way to the way to alleviate poverty, um, and at that point, at that moment in history, everybody agreed that we we had to use the government in some way to alleviate poverty. So Friedman said the way to do that most efficiently is to uh, instead of building a big bureaucracy um, and hiring a lot of social workers, the thing to do is just to uh, once we know that people are poor, we just send them money, uh-huh. <laughs> and you know, and and that that we would establish a kind of guarantee of um, a minimum income for every American family. If you're poor, you get money from the government. Sounds sensible, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so he proposed actually using the tax system for that, using the IRS. You know, if you, if you make money, then you owe money to the IRS. If you don't make money and you're impoverished, then we send you money. <laughs> oh. And, and that, was, that was the program, and that was one that a lot of welfare recipients also were, you know, were willing to endorse. Go ahead, Mike. Well, I just because I, I want to go to sort of sort of a basic. I want to get back to some basic concepts here because I think it, it, it the the water is so murky and muddy as far as uh, it, uh, welfare and welfare rights and and all of it. I want to go back to sort of the origin of the the rationale for for welfare um, supplementing people's incomes, keeping them out of ab- abject poverty. It it serves a very important social objective. But I want to kind of ba- I, I want to sort of go back to the basics here. What is the justification in the minds of the people that were struggling for welfare rights? What sort of give us an economic rationale for it? Well, I think there I think there are two ways to talk about it, um, and one is specifically, and, and this is something else I, I you know I found out in doing my research. I didn't know this um, that in the context of the late 1950s and early 1960s. Um, there really was an understanding by um, by a lot of economists and policy people that um, that unemployment was just going to be with us. That we were that our, ours was a society which was very affluent, and we had you know this, we had made these enormous gains um, since the war, um, but that our society also systematically generated poverty alongside affluence, and it systematically generated unemployment. And um, and some people were going to be left out of this this affluent society. That's John Kenneth Galbraith's phrase, um, and that we had to do something to bring them in, mm-hmm. and that it made no sense for us to pretend that everybody was going to have access to a job and to a, or to a decent job. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only way that we could give people Galbraith said the only way we could give people full employment and have everybody get their income through a job would be essentially if we produced things we didn't need. Mm-hmm. And he was very opposed to that. You know, he said we're already consuming things that we don't need. And he was, you know, he hated that 1950s consumer culture and the big cars with the fins on the end and stuff. He thought that was all awful. And he said, look, you know, instead of producing all this stuff that we don't need, um, let's just think about some other way to give people money that wouldn't require that they be in the labor market. So um, welfare or some kind of income transfer program, some 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 way of transferring income to people, um, outside of the labor market seemed like a reasonable solution to that. So that's the economic rationale. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so because I'm, as I'm hearing you explain this, I can hear all of the reactionary arguments that came about in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, particularly 
and fundamentally with Ronald Reagan. I, I mean, I sort of uh, see him as, as sort of a, a, a seminal figure in the sort of anti-welfare rights um, uh, political movement, if, if that's the right way to put it, uh-huh. where when he referred to the welfare queens and when he was in California when he was running for governor, it was a, he, they became kind of the, uh, um, his boogeyman. He ran against them on, on, and, and was successful. So the idea, and he ran on the idea that they were just getting money for nothing and that they were louts and layabouts and they were, they were criminals and all the rest of it. And he created a real fundamental change in the way people looked at this issue. Is yeah, this I, a, I, I, mean, think there, I think there was a, I think that moment when there was actually a fair amount of liberal consensus about the, about the idea that we, we really needed to take care of people outside the labor market, I think that was kind of a brief, a brief moment in our history. And right, um, I see it really changing around Reagan's, uh, Reagan's run for the California governorship in 1966. Um, that was a huge, um, a huge change point. Um, the other argument for welfare has always been that it supports women who are raising children, supports mm-hmm. mothers and kids. And that argument, I think, has been more successful over time. That was sort of the original rationale in the 1930s, mm-hmm. um, that, wel- that the welfare program was created basically to keep, um, to keep mothers from having to put their kids into foster care, because um, that had been the, the solution in the, you know, in the teens and the 20s was if you became impoverished and you couldn't raise your kids, then you had to basically... Um, let go of them. You, ha- you know, you had to give them up. Mm-hmm. And so, um, in the 30s, it was seen, you know, as a kind of humane and also economically rational solution to let mothers raise their own kids in their own homes. Um, and you know, and and even through the 60s, women on welfare were making that argument. You know, that they are mothers and that being a mother is a hard job, and um, you know, and they have to be able to sustain themselves and their kids. And I think, you know, I think these days people aren't persuaded by that because there are so many women who are mothers who are in the labor market. Um, but that argument, I think, lasted longer. Well, it, it, the argument I'm hearing kind of in the background of that argument is there's some, we're supporting sort of an immoral lifestyle. There's sort of, it sounds to me like we're, I'm hearing is it that, that uh, just beneath the surface of this is that somehow that uh, welfare it caters to some kind of decadent lifestyle or contributes to it. Is that, yeah, well, that's always been the, that's always been the accusation yeah. Um, you know, the fact is that just like, you know, just like unemployment is a social fact, um, single parenthood is a social fact, Right. you know, and so um, from my perspective as a policy person and from the perspective of the welfare rights movement in the 60s, it was like, well, here we are, Yeah. <laughs> you know, and the kids are either going to be poor or not poor, and the mothers are either going to have to give them up and put them in foster care or adoption or, or not, right? So we deal with that situation um, instead of dealing with some kind of fantasy situation. Now, tell us where we are. First of all, we're speaking with Felicia, Felicia Cornblue, and the book is The Battle for Welfare Rights, Politics and Poverty in Modern America. Now, you mentioned the, uh, the National Welfare Rights Organization. Where are they today as compared to where they were, say, in their heyday in the 1970s? As a national movement, they really don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, they're there still is local welfare rights organizing, and some of it has an explicit connection um, to the National Welfare Rights Organization. But as a national group, they really, they really couldn't survive the middle 1970s. And that was true of a lot of the, um, a lot of the social movements of the, the late 1960s. Um, mm-hmm. People had a rough time. And for these folks, you know, the, um, 
the the change in the political climate in the mid-70s and the, the economic crisis that was felt nationally and in a lot of states, um, that really that really demolished their capacity to, to organize. Um, these days you see welfare rights organizing at the local and state level in places like, um, like Philadelphia. There's a very strong movement which also has, um, has reached out in Detroit, Michigan, and statewide in Michigan, I know. Um, I don't know so much about Southern California, but I know um, in Northern California and Oakland um, there's organizing out of the Center for Third World Organizing, um, which has been quite powerful. Um, so you see it in pockets in places where um, welfare recipients have been able to get um, to build some allies and um, and to get some resources. But as a national movement, it really it really hasn't been it really hasn't been in existence since 1975. Why has organizing poor people become so difficult? Well, building on my historical case study, I would say you know that that what made it possible for them to organize in the way that they did. Um, was the fact that they had all kinds of um, resources and allies available to them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really, it was a movement that, uh, it was a poor people's movement, but it also was a movement that relied very much on committed, um, a lot of committed middle class people, um, social workers who said, I don't want to work for the welfare department anymore, I want to work with you guys, or who said, I still work for the welfare department, but I'm going to help you out. Um, lawyers who took pro bono cases, you know, lawyers who worked for nonprofit groups who wanted to do social change litigation with these folks, um, college students. Yeah. Those, were the, those are the people who I think made it possible for them to go from being a little local, a local movement you know, with limited success to being a national movement that was really able to impact on a large level. Well, you alluded to it earlier. What, was it also helpful that it was a part of a civil rights movement? Yes, that, it was, that too. It's, right, it's, it's the context in which it's operating. Right. And all mm-hmm. those things... All those things are kind of absent today, right? You know, so it, it, it's not surprising. It's disappointing to me, but it's not surprising that we don't have that kind of poor people's organizing today. Yes, and we go from a, uh, a democratic president, Lyndon Johnson, who starts the war on poverty, to a uh, democratic president, Bill Clinton, who signs away most of the welfare rights. Can, can you talk a little bit about that in, in 1996? His his uh, his welfare act. Uh, yes, it's, um, it makes me sad yeah. uh, when you put it that way, the road from Johnson to Clinton. Um, yeah. But it, that was a, a very, very pivotal moment, and um, it, was, um, it was after the Republicans had taken both houses of Congress, mm-hmm. and I think President Clinton felt like, I don't know, he felt like he didn't have any choice politically, although I, don't, I never agreed with that. Um, and the, the consequence was that after the welfare reform law of 1996, which um, was called the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunities Act of 1996, the result was that um, the federal government eliminated the old welfare program, which was called, which used to be called Aid to Families with Dependent Children. Mm-hmm. So they got rid of that and they created a new program called Temporary Assistance to Needy Families. And that temporary idea is the key idea, because the whole program was created to be a short-term help um, to families in need. And so now the maximum um, assistance you can get is five years over the course of your whole life, um, and some states have made it even shorter. Um, and then while you're getting that, the benefits during those five years, you also have to do something that the government considers work, something that's codified as work. And that does not mean um, going to school. Um, there's been a lot of fights about that, about whether you could, you know, if you need to go back and get your GED or go to community college or something, could you call that work under this program? And for the most part, the answer has been no. 
Um, so you have to do something that the government um, will stamp as a work activity. Um, so, so just to clarify, and, you know, it's not, so it's not very, it's not very generous, not very appealing. Yeah. So, just to clarify, the states have the ability to impose stricter requirements than the, yeah. than the feds do. Yeah, there's still um, there's still a lot of state and, flexibility. States also have the flexibility to do some positive things, like um, advocates. And I was involved in this a little bit. Advocates um, got the uh, the Congress to pass a family uh, violence option, so that some states actually will can can relax some of these requirements if a woman can sort of can somehow prove that she's a victim of domestic violence. Hmm. Um, and states have the option to do that, but they're not required to do it. See that that's always been the 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 uh, the appeal of a federal law has been that it supersedes state law, and that you find many states the disparity in around the country is quite striking in terms of requirements for all kinds of things. With a federal law, if you have a blanket requirement, most of it used to be back in the 60s and 70s that they were going, they tended to be more forgiving, more generous in, in, in what they, when the, what the requirements were. But with states, particularly the southern states, they tend to be very draconian in, the, in their requirements. So I guess I didn't realize that the, the, the states had the ability to sort of impose over the federal law on this. Yeah. Well, and, and they also... Even though there was this huge welfare reform in the 90s, it didn't fix any of the real problems of the old system. Like, one of the worst things about the old system was that um, your welfare benefits would, would be totally different depending on what state you lived in. Yeah. If you lived in Mississippi, you got very little. If you lived in New York, you, you, know, you got something closer to the poverty line. Yeah. Um, and that's still true. Actually, they didn't fix that <laughs> in, the, in the welfare reform law. So they didn't make it at all more efficient or more rational or, any, or more fair or any of that sort of stuff. Um, they just uh, they just reformed it in such a way that now nobody would ever want to be on welfare. What's been the effect? Has it just pushed more people into into poverty, uh, off the rolls, if you will? Yeah, we don't know all the effects because the federal government also has been underfunding um, the data collection process, okay. um, I think is a big mistake. But we certainly know that the rolls are smaller. Um, and the, the fear is that there are a lot of people who... Um, there are a lot of people who are then, you know, going to soup kitchens, um, yeah. winding up in homeless shelters. And we do know, you know, from, from small-scale uh, research and stuff, we know that the, the soup kitchens are overwhelmed right. now and the homeless shelters are overwhelmed, um, especially for their serving families. So, well, that's, so that's, the, that's kind of the scary outcome. And then there are also just a lot of people who are working like crazy. Yeah, two, three know? jobs. Yeah, Let's let's uh, roll through the uh, the Clinton administration. Let's get to today. Yeah, I was going to say that. And first of all, we're speaking with oh. Felicia Cornblue. The book is The Battle for Welfare Rights. And I'm going to jump in, Mike, and say, what do you make of John Edwards' emphasis on poverty in his campaign? Do you do you buy that? <laughs> I thought you were going to say whether I approve of it. Oh, well, yeah, um, no, well, it's a little different. Exactly. Um, yeah. and, you know, he's a politician. They're all politicians. Uh-huh. So. So I don't buy it at that level. That I don't buy it that he necessarily cares, but I do buy it that that um, that he's responsive to right. to activists who care, right? And there has there's been a movement in the last ten years or so um, around living wages, um, which, which is and that's been a, camp, a series of campaigns that have been pushed by community organizers and also to some degree by people in in the labor movement. Um, and uh, living wage as opposed to just pardon me. Living wage as opposed to just minimum wage. Let's yeah, make exactly, that distinction. Exactly yeah. right. And a living wage is something that's higher than higher than a minimum wage. And and there have been these very smart campaigns in in a bunch of uh, cities and counties that have that have created local 
um, local living wages, and in Chicago they almost succeeded at creating one for the whole city of Chicago that would that would um, affect all the big box stores, so that they couldn't pay people below a certain amount. Um, and uh, and so I think that that kind of movement and what's been happening, some of the good stuff that's been happening in the labor movement, I think that's really created a context in which somebody like Edwards comes forward and says that poverty is going to be his issue. And so I welcome it in that way. I welcome it as a as a real signal that um, that this is something that a lot of people care about and that that activists have successfully put on the agenda. And I think, you know, so they put activists put it on the agenda, then Edwards started talking about it, and then I think Obama has picked up on it to a large degree, and maybe we'll even see it from Hillary Clinton at some point. So I, I think um, I, I'm encouraged by it. I'm, I don't think, you know, I don't think John Edwards is, a saint, <laughs> but, I'm, well, but I'm very encouraged by it. Well, Felicia Cornblue, we just have a minute. As an historian, do you see sort of a one step forward, or two steps forward, one step back sort of arc uh, as far as welfare and welfare rights are concerned? Do you see... Uh, are we moving forward? Are, are we moving forward now? Beginning to move forward again? Yes, let's end on that note. I <laughs> think um, I think we're I think we're in a positive moment. I think we need to our, I think we need to keep talking about what people earn when they do work in the labor market, and I also think we need to talk about what happens when people are outside the labor market because their mother's raising kids or for any other reason. Right. So I think we, you know, and I think if we can keep our eye on sort of both of those prizes, right. both of those issues, then I think we can make progress. Well, excellent. Well, thank you very much for joining us here today, Felicia Cornblue, and the, and the book is The Battle for Welfare Rights, Politics and Poverty in Modern America. Thank you. Thank you. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And this is Weekly Signals. <laughs>